0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Health Conscious Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jefferson Akers, and today, Millen and I are fortunate to be joined by Matt Seafeld. Matt is currently an executive vice president at Medevolve, where he works with physician practices to coordinate the implementation of software aimed at optimizing the revenue cycle management process. Prior to Medevolve, Matt served as a manager at both Deloitte Consulting and PricewaterhouseCoopers, in addition to serving as the founder and CEO of Interpoint Partners. On this episode, we take a very deep dive into the role of digital technologies and automation in the revenue cycle management process, and feel that it has something to offer all of our listeners, whether you're a graduate student or someone with aspirations in healthcare IT ventures. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please like and subscribe, and feel free to leave us feedback in the comments section. And without further ado, let's begin the episode. Matt, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast with us. To get questions kicked off, a lot of our listeners are current graduate students. And so to start us off, can you give a high-level overview of what revenue cycle management is and why revenue cycle management is such an urgent matter for healthcare providers?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, ref cycle management is really everything from the scheduling of a visit to the zero balance, meaning that everything was delivered, billed, paid, posted. And it's, so it's a very complex, touches a lot of people across a healthcare organization, whether you're looking at a hospital versus an ambulatory group. You know, the, the, the key to it is that a lot of folks think of healthcare, this is really for the grad students, is delivering the service, right? Best outcomes, best med devices, best everything. And what gets left behind, and I've seen this over 21 years of my career, is it's the revenue cycle. It's getting paid what you're supposed to be paid on time. And when that doesn't happen, knowing in seconds why and what to do about it. And there's a thousand breakdowns that can happen, or probably more than that, that can lead to not getting paid correctly or
0: at all. Thank you for that overview. I think that's something I've been struggling with keeping in mind, how comprehensive the revenue cycle is. And then to your point, how it's such a crucial step in keeping the lights on in terms of revenue collection. Medevolve, your company really seeks to maximize the amount of revenue collected by physician practices from payers. Can you talk about some of the barriers you've seen to physician practices and healthcare providers in general, fully capturing the revenue they're owed from payers?
1: Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing is just unwilling to change. Um, I was on a meeting yesterday with a massive group uh, of surgeons and they rightfully admitted that they're not willing to hold people more accountable to get the benefit, you know? And so the fact that I'm still hearing that in 2021 is, is alarming to me. And, And when you look at a revenue cycle, you have to look at the people, the processes and the technology that's being used. But somebody has to hold those folks accountable for the work they're doing and the effectiveness of that work. Surgeons, doctors have to be held accountable for the work they're doing. A lot of this is around education. A lot of this is educating folks on what they need to look at and why. And based on what they're seeing, what do you do, what do you do about it, right? So, so for Medevolve standpoint, we've built a lot of our tech We've built to reduce the labor cost of delivering delivering the the revenue cycle services. We've focused on ways to improve the net revenue. And so when you think about, you know, I know we're not on video, so it's kind of funny, but (laughs) when you think about cost on one side and net revenue on the other, right, you've got gross charges that sit up top. Gross charges are a joke, right? I mean, I, I talked to an orthopedic group yesterday that's 10 times Medicare, and I'm like, why would you do that? Well, you know, we we just do. So, you know, okay, great. Bill $10,000, you're still only going to get $1,500 back. But what does matter is what you collect on the net revenue side. So if I bill a dollar and I expect 96 cents back, why am I not getting 96? That's a huge breakdown in revenue cycle across the entire healthcare organizations across the U.S. and beyond. And then it's labor costs, right? And those two things together drive margin. And don't forget about high deductible plans now, too. We're all feeling that, right? I mean, I got major deductible. I pay most of my healthcare bills the first six months. If I can't afford to pay, half the dollar now comes from the consumer. 20 years ago, it was five cents on the dollar. So if these guys can't collect, hospitals are under pressure, too, because you have emergency rooms. People can just walk into the ER and they have to be treated, right, with no ability to pay. So I'm throwing a few things at you guys because you know when you think of like being in your grad program, is that these are things that I think folks come out of school and they don't necessarily know the intricacies of revenue cycle and what the impact is. And now with COVID, that's a whole different level of complexity that's going on, which I think we'll get to later on in the podcast.
0: Now, that's an interesting point, Matt, because as you mentioned, a revenue cycle process is something that transcends institution to institution, but. No matter where you are and what type of delivery setting you're in, it ultimately comes down to individual accountability, both on your colleague's standpoint and on the patient's standpoint.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it does. And and, and you have to have metrics in real time to tell that story right quickly. You can't live in the world of running reports and triangulating and pivot tables and all that nonsense, right? you got to bring answers to the surface is what we spent so much of our R&D now on is, is looking at ways to tell you a story, good or bad, quickly so you have more time to do something about it rather than trying to figure out if you have a problem or not.
2: Matt, that's a really interesting point that you brought up. And I know in one of your calls last year with MetaVolve, you mentioned that a good chunk of your work uh, involves workflow automation. Can you explain what exactly workflow automation is and how exactly is that going to help optimize revenue cycle management processes moving forward?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And so so the starting point, uh, so when I look at workflow automation, it's about making sure that when work is delivered to an FTE, to an employee, it needs action action is required on it versus there is no action. So if you look at outstanding insurance AR, so that, you know, let's just use hospital A has $10 million in outstanding AR, you know, and that $10 million represents 20,000 claims, right? Automation can actually carve out those claims that don't need to be looked at today. Tomorrow they may be, need to be looked at, maybe a denial comes in, but today they don't. So why do, why do healthcare organizations staff for that? It's about an 80% carve out is what I've seen over the years. So if I have 20,000 claims, 80% don't need required action today, leaving 4,000, that's about four FTEs. An organization of that size probably has 12 at $50,000 a pop and fully burdened. And so, So automation can start to carve out the things that don't need to be looked at that allows the individuals, the employees, to focus on the stuff that needs to be. And that's what will then drive the net revenue, right? It drives that, we call it net collection rate, which is if you bill a dollar and you expect 96 cents, you're getting closer to the 96 cents. It's funny, there's a lots of, of companies out there now that are trying to build algorithms and things to actually do the work for employees. I frankly don't see that as being a huge driver right now. Most billing platforms, big boys included, blue chips included, are terrible at work drivers for the revenue cycle staff. There's democracy when there shouldn't be. Right? It's it's let's let Bob do what he wants to do. Let Sally do. No, 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 no. I mean, dictatorship's a bad term nowadays, but let's just go with it. Like in revenue cycle, man, that staff person logs in in the morning, grabs a cup of coffee, and they go to work. And the first thing that shows up in front of them is exactly what you, as a leader, expect to. That's that's what you have to do, especially nowadays. Margins are so thin.
2: Gotcha. It sounds like it's a very useful tool to help sort of lean out the operations, especially from a, a workflow perspective when you've got so many staffing shortages. Uh, one question here is: you know, out of the seven revenue cycle steps, which steps would you say are primed to target for streamlining using this tool?
1: So I I would say financial clearance for sure, which is your front office pre-service work, right? So let's just use an example, right? I've got a bad shoulder. That's a true story. I need to get elective surgery done. Probably true story. (laughs) I'm not going to do it this year because my deductible is too high, but I schedule my appointment, right? With the physician. It doesn't stop there. It starts there. Now, all of these things have to go into place. Somebody has to verify that I have insurance and the benefits to get the procedure about to be done. Someone has to estimate what I'm gonna owe and collect it. Someone also has to check to see if I have prior balances from prior services that need to be collected before I see you again. That's a big, big ticket item nowadays with with reducing bad debt. Uh, Verifying demographics seems basic, but address and now email and mobile phone are critical. Why? Because people like to communicate digitally, right? You know, this next generation of of, of patients is not gonna be okay with some snail mail statement, right? They They want to be able to interact with their physicians, as well as the billing side virtually through text message and um, uh, in, in email. And the last thing for that is the pre-cert, the authorization the referral, right? Is there something required before I get operated on? If any one of those things goes wrong, you've just increased Massive workload on the back office side of revenue cycle, right? That's the people that now have to go figure out the right insurance. They have to hope the office is still valid. They have to make sure that they collect from the patient, right? All those things happen. So the most critical piece to me for accountability and automation is on the front office. It's on the front. I shouldn't say front office, but it's on the front end of the revenue cycle, which really is everything from the scheduling all the way till the time the treatment is rendered. Now, on the back office side, you know, that also becomes important, too, because when mistakes happen, which they do, how quickly can you understand that mistake and adjudicate it, right, so that you do get paid? Um, but that's, you know, there's lots, like you said, there's lots of different areas of revenue cycle. I think those would be about my two areas that have to be prioritized in this range.
2: No, thank you for setting, shedding light on that. I am curious, I guess, what are the keys to successfully implementing workflow automation specifically to handle predictive
1: denials management? So there's uh, so actually a couple ways we could we could take that question. You know, I think the, the first thing in terms of predictability, that's really comes from like, so we have a full data science team. I, I manage our data scientists here at MetaWall. We spend hours and hours and hours looking at first pass denials right, no authorizations, coordination, benefits, eligibility, coding, charge entry, and then we start to profile those into the why. Like, is it a particular payer? Is it tied to a particular representative who didn't do their work correctly on the front end? And so starting to get more predictability around the action that's being taken and what that outcome is going to be. And in this case, right, denials would be a negative outcome. So a lot of it is transparency driven. It's how quickly can you get to that? And again, billing systems fail big time at this right you know and frankly medical billing systems failed up until two years ago when we had to really change this entire company to focus on much more cloud-based workflow automation and transparency solutions for our business and, and they fail at it because they spend so much time focused on the clinical experience right with their emr and now the patient engagement right oh i have a waiting room app and i have digital forms and i have all these cool things for you you can request prescription refills and you can look at your lab tests all very important what gets left behind i said at the top of the podcast it's the revenue cycle it's the it's everything that happens after the service right well during the pre-service and after service so i think that that the the predictability will continue to be a massive driver for systems going forward because if you can predict what's about to happen you hopefully can prevent it Right. And we've seen that already. Right. We've seen the payers that, that said they didn't require research for a certain CPT code. And guess what? First pass denials say something different. So we're educated when we talk to the payers now. We're educated when we talk um, uh, to the employees. The, the one last thing I will say, uh, which is not just tied to predictability of denials, but anything is to be effective with workflow automation. You have to be willing to change your people and your process to align with the technology. That's a huge barrier in healthcare that you guys, as you've got to build your careers in healthcare, you're going to see. So vendors have great point solutions. Some are vaporware, some are not, right? My experience in two decades is that hospitals and physicians, they purchase these vendor solutions thinking that the technology will solve the problem and drive the result. Big mistake. One of the conversations that I've taken with me over the years is I met with the CFO once in Florida, big, big health system. And I said, when would you answer my phone or return an email? He goes, I would. I'm like, okay, well, thanks for being honest. <laughs> not going to bother spamming you anymore. Well, when would you seek a product or a service that I have? Because when I have a problem that's identified. I said, would you reach out to me? No, I call my buddy down the street and find out what they're using, right? So my point to this is that you have to be able to find the people who recognize that just installing tech is not the answer. You've got to be willing to relook at your process. I can't tell you, when we install our technology nowadays, we're actually consultants. We're literally go in there and do an assessment of current people and process. We do our recommendation set of how it needs to change and how that all better with the software and the results. The clients who take us up on that have way better return on investment in that first six months than the clients who say, no, nah, we're going to keep it our way from now. You know, people in healthcare wanna buy results. They don't wanna buy technology and or tech, tech-enabled services. They want results, right? And I, I say that again and again, when I when I speak to the physicians and executives, is you're not looking for my tech, you're looking for a result, which in your case, so-and-so, is reduce your labor dependence, right? Make sure your people are effective and improve your net revenue. Now, my technology will get you there, but you have to be willing to change. <laughs> and that's the hardest part. I, Consulting is still such a huge multi 1000000000000 dollars industry. In
2: yeah, no, you brought up a really good point. Obviously, the technology is important and being able to have that data infrastructure is such a critical part of that. But it seems like, you know, majority of these physician practices are essentially data warehouses and it's not spending a lot of time mining that data, but you, you really utilizing that data to drive the actionable in, you know, insights and results, which it seems like is the most important
1: yeah if you think about it i love you know, brought up data warehouse you'd be surprised like even this group i was mentioning from yesterday this is a massive group with multiple billing systems they don't even have a data warehouse they don't even have a centralized data warehouse of all of their practice management let alone EMR data that you can kind of now put a data visualization tool on top of right you know in our case we use microsoft power bi but but i think that the the you know, if you look at the evolution of data analytics over the last 20 years, you know, when I actually left Deloitte in 2006 to start Interpoint, which was my company, it was literally workflow automation, and revenue cycle, analytics, and revenue cycle, which I built over five years, and I sold it to a public company in Georgia and Atlanta back in 2011. The reason I tell you that is, is the fact that, that people still, to this day, don't understand the importance of access to intelligence. I don't mean access to data. (laughs) I don't mean, intelligence is a different thing. And what I mean by that is that you can't just put a data visualization tool on top of a warehouse and expect results. That's assuming your people know what they should be looking for. And if they did, consultants wouldn't have to go back to clients year after year fixing the same problems, which is what I did, right? So, so this isn't meant to be condescending. This is the reality, is, is that you, I want to bring answers to the surface for you, which is intelligence. I don't want you to have to go data mine. I don't want you to have to go do endless pivot tables. Tell me a story. And I have about five minutes every morning over a cup of coffee to read my stories and know if I have to ask questions. You know? And that's a requirement nowadays. Every other industry seems to get this. Healthcare is like what do you mean real-time decision-making based on facts and not feelings? It's like, you guys know this, you guys are smart you're in grad school. Like, go look at banking, you know, or any other vertical out there who, who figured this out. And, you know, and here we are in healthcare going, well, you know, it's just the way it's always been. It's like, actually it's not.
0: <laughs> Matt, you're obviously aware of this, but high deductible health plans are shifting a lot of financial responsibility onto patients. And with that being the case, Where do you see opportunity for a platform like Medevolve to not only help physician practices capture payments, but also contribute to patients having a positive experience with their providers?
1: Yeah. So there's a couple of things there. One is about transparency, right? So if I'm about to go get my shoulder done, I would really appreciate having a really good estimate. Doesn't have to be perfect, but a good estimate of what my out-of-pockets to be. Right. So that's number one. You know, we actually have a patient estimator built into our, our system. A lot of PMs do. This isn't just a medical story. Um, the second part is flexibility of payment plans and arrangements. Right. So if I got a three thousand dollar surgery and I'm going to owe three thousand in January because my deductible is four thousand, I can't write that check. today. So what are you willing to do you know, if I give you a credit card on file and could you charge two hundred dollars a month until it's paid down? Right, uh, if my insurance allows for it, and I pay in full today, would you be willing to give me a discount? So providers have to be willing to be flexible with the ways in which they can collect money from patients. That's all on the patient advocacy side, so estimates and flexibility. Now, where we get interesting is how are providers holding patients accountable for the money that they owe that they are not paying, and that's a major issue right now. If you look at bad debt write offs those continue to go higher and higher, right? You shouldn't have a bad debt write-off, literally in an elective surgery world, like hospitals with emergency rooms, I get, okay? But if you're an independent practice out there, bunch of surgeons and you're doing elective procedures, why would you have bad debt write-offs? You should be securing that money and that stuff upfront prior to delivering the service, right? The other big thing is the rise in account receivable. So if you think of account receivable on the self-pay, right? So claim goes out to insurance, it's paid. Right, remaining balance is balanced due by the patient. The technology and tools that, the, that a lot of clients are using to try to collect that money are archaic. I still have clients who actually make phone calls manually to try to collect payments. Do you know how much of a waste of time that is? nobody answers your phone anymore. Our connect rate on our auto dollar used to be 10% two years ago, it's at 1.8% now. And I'm not even selling, you know, auto insurance or trying to sell, you know, get you to, to, to sell my home, like all the spam crap that I get every day, right? So they're not even answering the phone. So what are we doing digitally? right? So what we've done in MetaVolve is we've done the digital mobile e-statement, ways to pay, billing portal, email, communication, like, hey, you owe this money. You know you owe this money. Let's work together. And let's use digital means in which to do that. Two things happen. One, your account receivable starts to drop dramatically, which is good, because now that's cash in the door that would have become a bad debt runoff. Sent to a hard collection agency at like probably 25 cents on the dollar. Uh, but two, you also are establishing a culture of accountability with your patient population, meaning is that I want to keep seeing you, but you have to pay me what, you know, I'm going to be flexible in that. I'm going to be flexible ways to pay, but you have to pay me what you owe. Right. And that's just not, we're not there yet. I mean, I I am not joking. If I looked at our revenue cycle clients today, I probably have two and a half million dollars sitting in patient responsibility for people who are already scheduled to come back in again. So when I tell doctors, I'm like, hey, do you like do you like free care? They're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, got a hundred grand walking through your door in September and October. It's already owed. I do? Yeah, you do. What do you want to do about it? You know, so so this whole high deductible plan really is two sides. You've got the more flexibility and transparency, right, for the consumer, but you have more, way more uh, demand for for uh, accountability on the, the AR side, right? And anything you can collect pre-service or point of service is great. I mean, we have a full integrated waiting room app. We have a whole pre-reg interface. So a lot of this money can be collected well in advance of the procedure.
0: That's interesting to hear how there's almost kind of two tangential things going on. Like you mentioned, from the patient advocacy side, it's a lot of adopting what we see in other verticals in terms of flexibility and consumerism. And then from the actual point of care side, it was interesting to hear how a lot of the basic accounting and financial collection functions can be really supplemented and supported by having the right data infrastructure in place. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's definitely two way. I mean, I mean, I've looked at. I've got clients, right? You know, multi specialty, large surgical specialties that are carrying seven to eight million dollars in self paid debt on their receivable. It's crazy. I mean, that's just. I mean, I mean, that that's a lot of that's deductible money. A lot of that should have been paid. Uh, the other insanity is people keep sending paper statements, right? I mean, first of all, return mail rates are still high. I mean, it's probably more than ten percent. You know, in certain industries like. Uh, the EMS industry, we have a big EMS client, it's probably like 25%. So again, if you don't verify demographics correctly on the front end, you don't get that correct address, then you're sending a 70 cent mailed statement to nobody. Right. And if and some people are just thinking that, well, I'll just keep sending statements and hopefully you pay. Look, if I send you a couple mobile texts, a couple emails, an e-statement, and one paper statement, and you haven't paid, you ain't paying. And you're just not paying. So you know so but you got to try all those levers uh, to be able to see the effectiveness. I had a, one, one quick example. I have a large urology group that we were doing the auto dialer for. It was effective. You know, back then the connect rates were decent. We were collecting money. We asked to move them to mobile email and text with the link to pay. And their answer was, yeah, I'll do it, but our patients are older and they're not going to pay that way. 30% of the money that started to come in was through the mobile text and email. These patients never needed a statement. So the answer is, yeah, yeah. And that, by the way, that number's on the rise too, right? Unless somebody disputes their bill, as long as your payment processing merchant vendor has flexibility with setting up payment plans and credit card on file within the app, which we, we do, they're going to pay their bill, right? I, I, you know, and you don't have to rely on paper, you know, holding paper. You know, I mean, I don't even know. Every time I go to the mailbox, it's just, sell my house and spam coupons. Like I don't get paid for anything anymore.
2: Matt, with the increasing difficulties to collect from patients on the account receivable side, can you expand a little bit more on what Medevolve is doing to differentiate itself from its key competitors? And you already touched on this a little bit with the digital initiatives that you have, but kind of walk us through the high level strategic goal for the next five to 10 years. And if you could also take us through some of the common high-level strategies that you take to increase the margins for, for your clients?
1: Yeah. So I think on the self-pay side, again, a lot of it is, is mobile communication is a big driver. And we're not the only ones doing that. There's a lot of vendors that do it. Um, but the other thing is really looking at scheduled patients, especially in our market. You know, we're highly elective surgeons. So these people are frequent flyers. They come back. Is starting to actually do mobile communication to schedule patients that owe money to try to start building more of that accountability. That hey, I want to see you, but you need to pay this before. That's actually dropping AR materially to reduce bad debt expense. So that's a tactic that we've found is starting to become really effective, and we're going to expand on on that piece. Um, The, you know, the overall. Margin conversation, it's, you know, again, you know, you've got your gross charge that bills out to insurance, you've got your net revenue, which is what they paid. Uh, net revenue also makes up what the patient portion of whether they paid it, and then you've got your labor costs, right? And so for revenue cycle management, you know, we've differentiated by building technology that automates workflow, right? That holds people accountable for their effectiveness of their job, not just productivity. There's, that's a, there's a big difference between the two. And, and then improving that net collection rate, which is, uh, which is their, their uh, net revenue, right? And that together is what drives margin for our clients. That's why a lot of our clients who adopt our ways and our tech are getting such big results, which turns the case studies, speaking at conferences, but um, I'm actually speaking with a client next week down in Dallas and speaking with another ortho client in AAOE in the fall. And, and, and because people want to hear the story. They want to hear the results and how we got there. So I think that margins are going to keep getting crunched. Uh, there's no doubt about that. You've got um, insurances are not going to start paying more. It's just out of your Medicare is going to continue to have to make cuts, right? Then you've got on the other side of that patient's deductibles are going up. Who knows with the economy, if all of a sudden people start losing jobs again. Right now, I know there's more jobs and people want those jobs, but let's just say people are holding hoarding money. You're going to pay your electric bill. You're going to pay most of your bills will be paid before the healthcare bill on your desk. That's just, that's the reality of it, right? Food on the table, basic living, healthcare, I mean, I've got two healthcare bills on my desk. Will I pay them? Absolutely. That's who I am. Am I like, Oh my God, after this podcast, I need to make sure to pay that. Absolutely not. You know, so, so it's, it's, it is going to continue to have macro influencers that are going to continue to put margins, stress margins without anything changing. Right. So, the labor piece, I just want to point out, you guys brought this up already, is it's really hard to find people right now. We're having a terrible time finding people that want to work. That's I don't think that's going to change. I think people with COVID realize, you know, reset their life. What do I really want to do? If I'm working for 20 bucks an hour, do I like what I'm doing? You know, there's this whole kind of this, especially the younger generation. And so why that's important is if you think you need 10 people and you can't find 10 people, then you better have technology in place to make sure you don't need those people, right? So when I do a value prop for clients or prospects, I'll say, look, you, know, you think you need to add 10 people in revenue cycle. With my technology, you actually don't need those 10. In fact, you actually could free up two. So don't stress about you know, being able to recruit and retain uh, that's going to be a factor. The other big thing is virtualization. I don't even touch on that here, but but can you send your workforce home? So like my workforce went home in April of 2020. Entire revenue cycle, because we built this tech to be able to hold them accountable anywhere they work. So work from anywhere is going to continue to be a driver, including revenue cycle. You, know, you, you can't assume that these centralized business offices are going to be able to require staff to come in. That could be a dissatisfier for a staff person who built a life around COVID, you know, childcare, all these different things in their lives. And they're like, well, then I don't wanna work there anymore. I'm gonna go work for the other guy who's giving me the home option. But if you don't have the tools in place for virtualization, communication, and accountability, you can't do that. You just can't do that. Um, and that, that's gonna be a challenge. That's an HR nightmare right now. I mean, we're, we're literally, with the exception of California and New York, which we don't hire in anymore because it's so crazy HR stuff. We literally have job wrecks out, and we're hiring people from all kinds of states. And, and that's giving us, one, access to better candidates, and two, you know, it, it allows us to recruit faster you know, as, as we bring on. I have more clients coming to me today begging for help in a revenue cycle. Can you give me a poster? Can you give me a charge entry coder? I need a couple of AR reps. I don't have people. I'm like, I would love to but I don't even have the people to run my own rank cycle services. So this is not just a metal ball thing, this is a pandemic thing, right? And this is, and who knows with, with where this whole thing's gonna go. So the last thing I will say, on that, and I'm bouncing around a bit, but I wanna give you guys the nuggets to think about is when you look at COVID, what happened, right? All of a sudden surgeries got shut off, right? Now you're starting to see a massive slowdown. We've seen about a 10% drop already in August compared to July in terms of surgeries. And especially in the states where they don't get vaccinated and that Delta running crazy. Why is that important? Well, it's important because now you have major disruptions to your cash flow, but yet your labor cost is fixed. So it doesn't take an account of you to say, you know, labor cost is fixed, and I also dropped 10% in my net revenue because of COVID cases. And my net you know, my margin now just got crunched without me doing it. So you know, back when COVID started, we furloughed. I furloughed eighty percent of my people, which are a lot of people for basically second half of March, all April, April, and brought them back, and then some now. But we had to act quickly on that because we half my revenue is not technology; it's services. Right? I bill for tons of surgical specialties across the U.S. But but it's important for for any listeners who are looking at running practices to make sure they understand this impact to to closing ORs, the social. The social impact of patients just not wanting to do it. Look, if Delta's running crazy, I live in San Diego, it's not, but let's just say it was, and I got scheduled to do an MRI. Do you think I want to go sit in an MRI for forty-five minutes right now? Is it really? Is that really necessary? I'm going to kind of wait. I don't even really want to go into a waiting room right. So you think about all the things that are, those things are all macro things that are happening that if you don't have transparency and the access to data and and intelligence, not just data, but intelligence and the work drivers to hold your folks accountable, to stay lean and effective, you're obsolete in two years. You're going to have to sell your practice to a hospital. You're going to have to sell your practice to a private equity firm, or you're going to retire early. All things are major realities right now, at least in the independent physician world where I live.
2: Well, wow, thank you for providing such a comprehensive overview. It seems like for my key takeaways, you know, the way that you're trying to differentiate yourself in the industry from your clients is, you know, really understanding ways to have leaner operations with your staff, you know, understanding the current crunches, crunches and shortages in the workflow right now, but maintaining the ability to still provide the level of intelligence, figuring out a way if you can virtualize your staff and, you know, uh, have them work from home. And then focusing on engaging with your patients through mobile communications and scheduled payments. Um, so thank you again for providing such a great overview on that. I guess shifting to a slightly different note, you know, you worked a little bit as a venture capitalist in the past. Can you talk about some important factors that you focus on when you're evaluating late stage co- or early stage companies? And this could be from you know risk, profitability, you know how the company differentiates itself for, in terms of their products and services. Can you just walk us through that
0: yeah
1: so i mean i did start inner point that was from an idea in my head you know I was a high maintenance entitled 29 year old that had a had a, was tired of running pivot tables <laughs> so so i moved out so so i i have firsthand experience of course then the lovely 2008-9 recession hit which made it even more difficult to even access capital uh, but we, we weathered the storm we made it through we had a good exit um you know, years later, but I I bring that up because I've had firsthand experience with what it takes to take an idea, turn it into something of value that someone's willing to pay for. And most early stage companies don't even think that through. Um, I'll speak to early stage companies in the context of healthcare software. You have a lot of good ideas that may have worked in other industries, but these folks don't understand what it takes to get it installed and value into the healthcare uh, standpoint right? So if you think about, I'm not saying these are vaporware point solutions. A lot of them have great ambition behind them. But if you're selling a sophisticated product to what I consider an unsophisticated industry with an unsophisticated buyer, right? And by the way, by unsophisticated, I don't mean dumb. These are smart. For the most part of the people we sell to are very smart. and added. Unsophisticated meaning they're not open to change people and process to align with this technology, right? I keep going back to that. Something that was instilled in me my first year of consulting, I've taken it ever since. So, so if you're not willing to change, it doesn't really matter what this company has to sell you, you won't see the value in it. And so if I'm an early stage company and I've built another company called My Life Link, which is a, actually it's a, it's, a, it's an app for you know people that are seeking to get sober from physical and behavioral addiction now having to go through that whole process again and not figure out how i'm going to commercialize it you know gives me another reminder of what it really takes to yes you have a great idea where is it what is it going to rely on to work right do you need access to data if you need access to data from a system that is not yours i.e an emr or billing system that is a major barrier it's hard to work with those other vendors. It's hard to get the hospital or the physician group to to warrant working with them, right? If you have a data warehouse you can pull from, that makes it better. But access to data, the whole concept of interoperability, which is a joke in my opinion, everyone thought Epic would solve that. Like it's not being solved guys, it's just not. I am today so burned out and trying to figure out ways to negotiate my way into data feeds that drive value for our services. Thank God we have our own billing software. <laughs> they just at least I like can grab all that data without asking permission. But when I have to go bolt on to an Epic or a NextGen or an ECW or an Athena Health, oh my gosh! I mean, how many months do you have and begging and this and that? So businesses have to think about what they're going to need to implement, sustain, and generate that ROI. And that is not vetted, in my opinion, the way it should be. Here, the other big thing is your sale, your go-to-market strategy. People think you just go up to an MGMA or an AGMA or HAMS and you pop your booth up and everyone's gonna love your idea. You are one of thousands of people. People that are going to those conferences don't care about you. They don't. They are there to get credit. I know you guys are gonna laugh at me. You can tell I'm a realist here. I'm a, I'm a jaded realist here. Um, they are going to get their credits, right? They're there to network with peers. They may have a short list of vendors, but they've already done their research on those guys and they're gonna run straight to those booths. So if you think that's going to, somehow, if you think spamming for LinkedIn ads doesn't work, people don't open that. They delete them. People don't answer calls anymore. So again, what's your go-to-market strategy and how are you going to generate that revenue, right? So one thing to think about is, is there a B2B play, right? Could my go-to-market strategy not be direct to consumer or direct to a provider, but could I go through a partner who doesn't have, so we have a couple partners today that we've integrated to our billing platform to sell their technology and services, which works really well. Actually, we've got three major ones. So so we didn't want to build it because we didn't have the money to go build it, nor did I want to spend the time doing it. We don't have the money to go buy somebody, especially at the crazy multiples people are getting now. So we partner. So the partnership model, the go-to-market strategy, I think is the other, other, other piece there. Um, the last thing I'll say, especially if you guys are thinking about starting companies, you have peers that are, just be careful how much you invest. And in, how do I say this with political correctness? Don't waste a lot of time on worrying about cap tables and all the you know equity and this and that. And I got to get the c in place. I got to have all these people. You need to sit back and really vet whether you have an idea that's going to work. I spent so much money on attorneys and BS setting up, well, an LLC, then it was an S-Corp, then it was just, I, it, just so much money and time, right, that was wasted. Uh, that didn't mean anything when it came time to exit. So I always caution entrepreneurs to, to think through what that team needs to look like. And you also have to really look at the guys you're starting this thing with, you know, a you know, female, obviously anybody, you know, you're starting, what does your team look like and what are they invested in? And are they really willing to go without paychecks? Are they willing to put the SWAT equity time in? A lot of people say they will, and the answer is they actually don't. And you end up having to buy them out, you know, six to 12 months down the road. So I know that's a little off topic, but again, if you have entrepreneurs out there that have an idea they came up with in grad school, go to market strategy, how am I gonna get the, what information, what do I need from existing systems to run my software? Um, and then the last, you know, the last thing is really looking at the team that you're building to really go out and execute on this plan. And the one other thing I would just add too is from a sales standpoint, you gotta figure out your go-to-market, your integration, all that needs to be vetted out and figured out before you start throwing people out on the street. Because remember, if you have a really cool idea, the chances are five other companies are already doing it, which is good, I, I don't mind competition. In fact, it, it substantiates the business if you do have competition. But what that means is that you got five other companies out there that are selling to the same people you are, right? And once you get that first contract, then what are you going to do quickly to put more feelers into that organization? So my, I like the land to expand, right? So get in any way I can, and then upsell, upsell, upsell as we innovate new technology and new services. And that becomes much more of an ecosystem when the clients have the chances of them leaving us is, is much less. So attrition is, is important. Managing attrition of clients and revenue is, is as important as trying to figure out your you to market and how you're going to get in there to begin with. Buying cycles take a long time too. If you're selling your product into the hospital side, you've got an 18 to twenty more, for 24 months. It's just, it's just the reality of it. Most of them have to go through a budget cycle. If you're selling into private practice, three to six months, you can, you can get it done because it's less governance, it's less bureaucracy. All these things have to be vetted. You know, We could probably do a whole podcast on mistakes that I've made with two companies. <laughs> so... But um, it's a tough industry to sell into. I don't know if I'd go into it again. You know, I, I feel like at this point, I'm so, I'm so invested in it. I'm, I'm not sure I'm leaving anytime soon, but there's burnout for sure. You know, when you have a big ROI and you've got case studies and testimonials and you know that they're bleeding money on the labor side and they're bleeding money on the AR and the net revenue side and they still have to think about it, man,
2: <laughs>
1: it just gets, gets numbing. But you don't need to win them all you know, in our case, we need to win about 30 percent.
2: Matt, thanks for keeping it real. And I know all the healthcare students that are interested in entrepreneurship are definitely going to find your advice to be extremely meaningful. Uh, It seems like all the major components that you covered really were one, understanding that there is a lot of change resistance, especially in the healthcare industry, and people aren't going to buy into ideas very easily. So figuring out ways to sort of work around that. You mentioned data accessibility. You know, who are you going to partner with? How are you going to enter the market? And where are you going to get your data from to be able to drive those insights? Vetting the idea with, uh, with you know, making sure that it's viable and feasible and then, you know, figuring out what resources you're going to need. Um, it seems like those were the major components that you highlighted.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, if you can vet it, you know, I, one last thing I would just add to is be careful wasting a lot of time on partnerships. It, it, it's amazing how vendors think that, Oh, us together, is going to be amazing. And then six months later, you don't even have a BAA in place. I wasted a lot of time on aspirational partnerships that were never going to generate anything. So be very smart, specific around the partners that you may need to get into that organization. And and honestly, this day and age, I would say start with the data vendors. Most of the point solutions that you guys will be developing as entrepreneurs to go in here are going to rely heavily on data from either the EMR or the billing system or both. So start there. Also, remember, those big blue chip EMRs are starting to encroach in a lot of these, 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 these areas. And so you get into a situation like we just ran into this recently with some larger practices we're trying to sell to that said, well, we're so ingrained with this other vendors, front office things. We really can't use your system for front office and scheduling, but we want to use you guys for getting the charge out the door and pay. So we're already feeling that too, even though we offer all those things. Is is that some of these other vendors we compete with, that the entrepreneurs we're competing with have already started to put their feelers in there, you know, and and that can be a big macro impact to your sales strategy. You're like, I have a better solution than Epic, but Epic's Epic, you know, and once you get Epic involved, it's like it's really hard to unseat, you know, and so we have to find. Continuously find ways to, to, to sell around it. But data access is gonna to continue to be a challenge. Interoperability is not gonna be solved. You know, in my opinion, it's like reducing costs in healthcare. Good luck until you can get biotech, pharma, and med device on board. You know, it's, 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 it's not just a labor play there.
0: Matt, I want to transition a little bit and talk about professional development. You began your career as a management consultant, and that's a really good way to quickly build a good business acumen and learn how to do things like pivot tables. But how did you go about kind of developing the technical acumen that you needed to be successful in what you're doing now?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I was that guy at the job fair in 2000. Didn't know I mean, as an athlete in college. That didn't really help. I'm walking around aimlessly. I came across a consulting firm they're like, what do you do? Oh, you know, you travel Monday through Thursday and we try to solve problems in healthcare. Oh, that sounds cool, right? And so, so I, I kind of joke about that, but that was like my entry point. I didn't sit there and study for this in undergrad. Like it wasn't, right? Um, but once I got into my career, maybe this is my personality, is I hate wasting time. I'm very to the point. I do not want to beat around the bush. And so even in my earliest days of consulting, to look at the amount of hours that we as consultants were spending trying to tell a story, a one-time story to our clients to drive behavioral change was absurd to me. Like I shouldn't have to spend hundreds of hours to try to tell you why you need to change, right? So that was really the starting point to get curious. Like curiosity to me is one of the most important things in your career is, are you a curious person? I'd say 95% of people are not, right? They're going in, they're checking their box, they're getting, their pay, getting paid and they're, they're spending their weekends. You have to have curiosity into why things are happening the way they are. And then you have to have an initiative to say, I'm not, I'm not okay with that. So for me, I went from a stock campus, SSH, which was a, a very good boutique healthcare consulting firm that actually had some technology, some analytics and some workflow automation. So I got, I got introduced to that, which was nice. But then I moved to PricewaterhouseCoopers and then I moved to Deloitte, all of which, great firms, by the way. I mean, that PwC, I'd go, probably go back to those guys today, Deloitte, Deloitte was a good firm too. The challenge is, is that they weren't able to deliver technology in the way that I saw was required to sell in this healthcare industry. So I left and I started my own thing. And I started my own thing because I wasn't accepting the fact that we have to just do things the way they always were. And and I've really stayed with that in my career. So the technical acumen, you know, that stuff, look, I'm going to call myself out here. I don't know how to bill an insurance claim. I don't know how to code an insurance claim. But I can design the workflow required to hold those experts accountable for the work they're doing. And I can design intelligence tools that tell the story in five minutes or less. So you're not having to go in and try to figure out if you have an issue And that's where I'm pushing the limits now in my career. How do I get more automated, more accountable with folks, and more intelligence? Uh, Right now, we're working on two algorithms around employee effectiveness and client effectiveness, which is taking probably seven to 10 variables, key metrics, bringing it together in a numeric score, so I can look at my 50 RCM clients and say, these are the three got to call. Or I can look at my 10 payment posters and say, these are the three that need to be on performance improvement plans. So that's where we're taking this next level of algorithms and how do we bring even more intelligence to the surface so you're not even have to go in and look for, for opportunities. Um, the curiosity is a big thing. You know, I'd say there's two things that, that make you successful in business. Curiosity, so not just letting a problem just go like, oh, well, somebody else will to be curious why things are happening. And then it's actually, it's actually learning to delegate. It's learning to make sure that people actually delivered. On what they said they were going to deliver, and when they don't, there's consequences. Those last two things are really tough for a lot of people, right? Hey, I need you to do this, or I trust you're going to do this, but then not following through to make sure it was done and acceptable. And so, so those things are other uh, other areas that I would I would recommend anybody who's going to go into the professional industry, whether it's healthcare or not, stay curious. Don't accept, you know, things are the way it is, especially in healthcare.
0: Matt, I think that's a great answer for Millen and I and also our listeners who are looking to get their career established. It was nice to hear how internally you mentioned being a go-getter and then being curious, but also as you move up in the ranks, kind of that external part of being able to delegate, not only trust others to do their work, but when it's not that case, having an uncomfortable conversation or bring some sort of consequence to the table. The last question we had for you today is, Over the course of your career, you were able to gain a pretty broad base and a very diverse set of professional experiences in different types of settings. And so as you were transitioning your career from employer to employer, when could you tell when was the right time for you to make a move or seek a new opportunity?
1: Yeah, Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of this goes into, I, I, you know, again, started my career with a firm who who understood the value of automation and the measure to improve, right, analytics. Then I went to a firm where I actually built my own workflow automation system and analytics solution. I didn't build it. I had a guy develop it out of an access database. If you Imagine that. <laughs> I don't even know if people even use it anymore. But it worked. It actually worked, right? It worked. But then I went to a firm who saw the, the value in what I was talking about building for these health systems and providers, but they weren't willing to make the investment. Right. And that's when I knew it was time to move into my own entrepreneurial realm of, well, if you can't do it and I still see an opportunity, then I'm going to just build it. Now, in terms of exiting that company, you know, there were lots of things that went into that factor uh, as well. You know, Um, when opportunities exceed your capabilities, you grow. If you're out there and your capabilities are exceeding your opportunities, be very careful there, because. While it's easier, right, is that you don't have that growth. And I can tell you, I have tons of friends in their careers that are like kind of dead end, like, I don't know, well, I'm collecting, making good money, and things are the way it is. They're not curious anymore. They're not trying to push the envelope. They're not, they're not being disruptors, right? And it's hard to be a disruptor when you work for the provider side. It's easier on the consulting side, and you can certainly be it on the vendor side, but what is it, what, what's most important is that you have to have providers that are willing to be disrupted, get out to to do these things. So I think you'll know, you know, I've built my whole career on on understanding. I control actions. I do not control outcomes in life. Um, I've had lots of things in my personal life that will be a testament to that. And, and so you will know when it's time to change, when you realize the things that you want to do are, are no longer being looked at, right. Or no longer being a priority. And if you believe in yourself and you believe in your idea, then chase it. But again, like we just talked about a few minutes ago around setting up a company, entrepreneurism is it's don't just jump right in, you know, because I actually kind of what I did, like I literally I lived in Atlanta, Georgia. I left Deloitte in December of 2006. My brother picked me up, drove me back to San Diego. I partnered with a guy from college and we started Interpoint. So I went from decent money to no money. To I didn't have kids at the time. I didn't have a house running. So life was a little easier and complex. But but you got to factor all those things in you know, is, is before you jump. I also think it's really, really important to try to validate your idea with who your buyer, you think your buyer is before you spend too much time, right? And, and it's it's important to know whether they're willing to change um, based on what you have developed or are selling. But career man, I, I I know it's not in everybody, but if you feel like your capabilities are, are exceeding your opportunities, you really got to look at, at your organization you're working for and see if you can make a move that challenges you or it's time to move, it's time to get out. There's such cool companies out there now, especially in healthcare. Right? You get into the behavioral medicine piece now and you get into the, you know, behavior modification and, you know, folks and, and all these things that are not happening around uh, the peripheries of healthcare. There's tons of opportunities. You don't need to stay put.
0: Matt, I'm a New Englander. So I really appreciate your blunt honesty and authenticity. I think it's very valuable. And it was awesome to hear throughout the course of our discussion, your career trajectory, how it's turned out and what you kind of thought about long term and planning your career. So on behalf of myself, Millen and all of our listeners, we really appreciate that. And thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no, I I appreciate you guys. And
2: and
1: hopefully, uh, you and the listeners will take a, a nugget or two from that.
0: I think we'll take more than two. Again, thank you so much. Bye.